Welcome to NeuroFriends, a podcast about the mind, brain, and beyond. This episode, I'm here with student host Sophie Hearn. Hey, Sophie. Hey. How's it going? It's good. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited for this episode. Uh, how did you get interested in, in this topic? So I talked to Sharon Greenblum, who the focus of her research is on the gut and the microbiome. And, you know, that's a good question. Um, I would say uh, I spent some time in Nicaragua, and I actually had a parasite when I was there, and I think that got me sort of interested in the gut bacteria, um, just like from knowing what it's like to not be healthy. And so, yeah, I've been interested in it ever since. Wow, that's super intense. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you said you had just a random passing interest. Yeah, no. <laughs> that sounds pretty, yeah, pretty firsthand experience. Uh, Sophie, what do you do here at Stanford? Uh, I'm a freshman. I just finished my freshman year at Stanford, and I'm considering majoring in symbolic systems, which is psychology, philosophy, linguistics, and computer science. And where are you from? I'm from Bethesda, Maryland. Okay, cool. Sharon is also from around there. Yeah. Uh, who's the study by? The study is by Gil Sharon and colleagues, not to be confused with Sharon Greenblum, um, who was the scientist that I was speaking with during the interview. What did you get out of this segment? Did you learn anything new about the, the microbiome or the, the community of bacteria that live in the gut? Um, yeah, the bacteria in the gut have a huge influence on a lot of different things in humans and in flies and how it can affect sort of mating preferences of flies and how um, it might affect like the mental state of humans as well. Awesome. We're looking at flies. We're looking at mating preference. Here we go. Here we go. Hello, my name is Sophie Hearn, and I'm here with Sharon Greenblum. Hi. Welcome, Sharon. Thank you, Sophie. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. So, first of all, would you mind just telling me a little bit about yourself and what you're studying right now? Sure. Um, so, I'm a postdoc here at Stanford. I've been here about a year and a half, and I um, did my graduate work in studying human gut microbiomes, um, so the community of bacteria that live in the human body, specifically in the human gut, which is where most of them are. And, and that was really fascinating to see all the effects that these tiny, tiny little organisms have on humans' everyday lives. And what I wanted to study more of is how those populations might change over time and how that relates to how humans potentially evolve or, or how the host that houses these bacteria interacts with the bacteria. And since I studied genetics, I joined a lab here at Stanford that studies how fruit flies evolve over time, specifically really, really rapidly. So in really short time scales, how large populations of fruit flies can adapt to whatever's in the environment by changes in their genomes. Okay, yeah. so why fruit flies? Are there other animals that you can study? or? Yeah, there are definitely other animals you can study. I mean, every species out there is changing little by little all the time and adapting to be better suited to its environment. Fruit flies are 
really, really popular in genetics because they were one of the first organisms that were well characterized in terms of what their genomes look like and what genes they have and what what those different genes do. So it's really well known what their genomes look like and they've been used for a lot of genetic studies. They also reproduce really quickly compared to a lot of other organisms. So a fruit fly goes from being an egg to an adult that's able to have another egg within two weeks. So you can see whole generations of fruit flies and watch how genes are passed on or watch the effect of a gene that's knocked out or non-functional without waiting years and years for babies to happen. There are a bunch of reasons that fruit flies are really helpful for genetics. They're also small, they're easy to take care of for the most part, they have really visible effects of some of the genes that are really well known, like white eyes versus red eyes. We know exactly which genes cause that, and it's easy to see what the effects are. I didn't know anything about fruit flies when I joined the lab that I'm in right now, and so I've been learning quite a bit but there are a ton of references and books and experts out there that know all about fruit flies, so I'm, I'm still learning. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, have you worked on other projects before coming to Stanford? Not on any fruit fly projects, but I've worked on projects that have to do with bacteria. Interestingly, I don't actually do any of the experiment part of things. My specialty is looking at data and figuring out what's going on. So the data that I was looking at in grad school uh, had to do with what species of bacteria live in different sets of people. And we were comparing the species of bacteria that live in healthy people to people with digestive disorders to people that are obese and seeing whether there are big differences. And more specifically, what I was looking at is not just whether this particular species is different between this group of people and this group of people, but in general, if you look at how the species all interact with each other, and you can kind of make this big network of how different species rely on each other, um, because some species of bacteria can't live without other species, basically just like we couldn't live without well, some other species out there, although we think we're king of the world. But (laughs) um, it's an ecosystem, right? We're we're dependent on a lot of other things for our survival, and it's the same in the bacterial world. And so there might be one species of bacteria that produces something that another species needs in order to survive. So they have these kind of food webs. And so what we looked at is, can we construct the food web or the network of how species interact in one set of people and um, what the interactions look like in another set of people and see if those kind of bigger scale things differ between groups. So it's kind of a way of looking at not just is this one particular thing different, but is the whole system in general different and what could that mean? Okay. And so when you're doing those experiments, are you kind of manipulating the species that are in humans or just looking at data sets? Yeah, we're just looking at data sets. So that's a really interesting question because the field of studying the microbiome, which means all of the bacteria that live in a given person, is still really new. Doing uh, manipulations in humans isn't that much of a uh, science yet. <laughs> um, so you might have heard of probiotics. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit more in that realm. So probiotics are basically foods that contain bacteria that you can ingest as, a, you know, just 
whenever. And the idea is that most of those bacteria are helpful and you can wash out the bad bacteria if you have any. So trying to kind of reset the balance of different species that live inside you to be more swayed towards good ones rather than bad ones. So that's kind of some of the manipulations that anybody could do. Every day we're manipulating our microbiomes just based on what you eat, what you come in contact with. But the data that we were looking at were just from patients that were, were sampled without telling them to do anything in particular. So the difference between people was not necessarily that they had behaved differently or were told to do different things, but just that they were either healthy or sick. Did you find any interesting results? Yeah, we did actually. So what we were looking at is, is how these two kind of food webs or systems of bacteria differ between healthy people and sick people. And what we found was that they do differ, not just in any particular species, but overall in kind of their structure or organization. And most of the strongest differences were at the edge of this network that we were able to construct or this food web. And so you can ask, what does that mean? What does being at the edge of the bacterial food web mean? And basically that's the part that interacts most closely with the human host. So the things that are at the very top of the food web are taking the nutrients or molecules from the human stomach. So whatever you eat, whatever goes into their environment, something has to um, transport them into the bacterial realm and, and start the food processing chain. Mm -hmm. And so what we found was that most of the differences between people seem to be kind of at the tops and bottoms of this food chain in terms of what these bacteria were actually able to recognize and then what they were able to produce at the very end. But the main channels of the sequence of events that happen after a particular nutrient or food source is taken in, those seem to be pretty constant. What was different was what they were taking in, what they were able to process. So yeah, that could have to do with different bacteria communities being better able to digest certain types of fiber or certain types of starch or whatever. But the nutrients that you take in determine what bacteria are able to survive best in you. So your body takes as much as it can out of the food, and then bacteria have another go at what's left. So the things that you can't digest, insoluble fibers, that's um, a, a term that is usually used to describe things that bacteria are really good at digesting that we're not good at digesting. Mm. Is there a way to tell if our gut bacteria is unhappy or if it's not like pleased with something we're eating or something about our lifestyle, mm. how can we tell if something's going on? Hmm. Well, so a main thing that bacteria can cause that's really uncomfortable is inflammation. That's basically bacteria can secrete molecules or get in places that they shouldn't be. So you have a stomach lining and if bacteria are unhappy, for example, they might be starving because all you're eating is potato chips and they're not getting anything because you are able to digest all those potato chips and they never make it down to where bacteria can get at them. So if the bacteria are starving, they'll actually start eating your stomach lining and that causes inflammation. That's like, you know, if something starts eating away at something, there are all these signaling molecules that set off alarms and inflammation is your body's way of dealing with bad things. So the bacteria start eating you, essentially, if you're not giving them what they want. 
And if they eat through some of that stomach lining, they can get into places that they shouldn't be, which causes even more problems. And so there's this thing called leaky gut syndrome, which is basically describes what happens is that bacteria are kind of leaking out of where they should be into places that they shouldn't. But there are people that have chronic problems, you know, digestive problems or pain problems. And for them, I mean, sometimes taking antibiotics works, getting antibiotics kill most of the bacteria in you. That's kind of just throwing a bomb in there and destroying everything. And if there were more bad things and good things, then you improved, hopefully, if you take away everything. But sometimes it's just one bad thing. And if you throw a bomb in there, you're taking away a lot of helpful bacteria too. So the thing that's worked the best so far, because we don't really know which are good and which are bad in every situation. So we can't just say, I want to take you out and not you out. And we can't say, I want to take everything out, but only put these certain types back in because we don't know. We don't know who the good guys and bad guys are all the time. That changes in different situations. But what has worked more than anything else is called a fecal transplant. And that's basically the idea that you can take a full, functioning, healthy community from someone else, which is found in their fecal matter, usually, um, which is kind of the best representation we have of uh, what's in their gut, transplant that into someone else whose bacteria has been wiped clean with this antibiotic bomb. And because that community was whole and functional in someone else, there's a good chance it'll be whole and functional in this new space too. But we don't have the capability quite yet of being able to construct a whole functional community from the individual species. We don't know what makes a functioning neighborhood. Hmm. So do you think there's any validity in taking probiotics or drinking kombucha or something like that? Like how, what makes people think that those are good bacteria? Mm -hmm. There have, I mean, there are a lot of studies that compare the bacteria that they find in healthy people versus the bacteria they find in non-healthy people and look to see whether there are big differences. And the types of bacteria you find in things like yogurt and find in things like kombucha, you usually see more of those in healthy people than non-healthy people. It differs based on the individual, but there hasn't been any evidence so far that those are bad bacteria. They haven't caused problems. So the idea is more that maybe you can wash out bad things with good or just neutral things. So it's in some ways, it's a space and resources issue. So if you try to flood your system, it's, you know, it's like if you have a country that's being ruled by this evil empire, if you try to just invade with someone that can crowd them out, take the resources away from them so that they can't survive anymore, maybe that's the best way to get rid of them. The other way would be to bomb them, <laughs> right? And so the best way is to kind of do both. Take antibiotics, you know, throw a bomb in there, destroy everything, but then right away fill that space again with things that you are pretty sure are, are helpful or at least neutral. So I would think that probiotics would be especially helpful after you take antibiotics. But there isn't a whole lot of solid repeated evidence that probiotics are helpful in any particular situation or for any particular person. We don't even know 
if they're sticking around or or if they're able to gain a foothold in your gut environment, given all the other species that are there. So, like, how long is their generation? Hmm. That's a good question that I don't know the exact answer to, but the answer is very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) So bacteria are always dividing and reproducing, and it's definitely more on the scale of seconds and minutes than hours or days. So you your whole bacterial population can change over just a, a day or two. What they mostly look at is, is how relative proportions of species are changing, and that can also change very rapidly within days. But how quickly an individual bacteria divides, I'm not quite sure on, and that probably differs between different species of bacteria as well. I mean, it's interesting, like, we think about all of the species we have you know that we see in the zoo and then multiply that by like a thousand or more and that's how many species are actually in the bacterial kingdom but we think of them all as just bacteria (laughs) Um, so there's a huge amount of variation in terms of what each of them can do and what their lifestyle is and how quickly they live how big they are things like that Um, But comparatively to, you know, the the macro scale version of things, it's all very quick. And we think of them all as being just the same thing. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there new species being formed like every day? So like, for instance, I was thinking a donkey and a horse, when they mate, they produce a mule. Does that kind of thing happen with bacteria? Yeah, for sure. It does all the time, actually even more. So bacteria can exchange pieces of their genetic material, their DNA. So whereas in order for the human population to change, um, most of the time what would have to happen is an individual base pair or letter in our genome would have to randomly mutate to something else and then that would have to be passed on and grow very very slowly in the population with bacteria a whole huge segment of the dna a gene or or even multiple genes at a time can just be cut out and given to someone else so you get a lot of hybrid DNA, and that can be across species. So it's as if we could actually just take some donkey DNA into our genome. Bacteria don't mate, per se. Um, They don't have sex, but that is what's called bacterial sex, is when they exchange genetic information without what we think of as the normal routines that go with sex. Hmm. Um, So bacteria are definitely changing really quickly. What's complicated about the answer to your question, our new species coming up every day, is we don't even know really what to call a species in the bacterial world. We know that we are different species than a donkey because when we mate with a donkey, we cannot have kids. Um, Don't try this at (laughs) home. But (laughs) with bacteria, there isn't really that barrier. You know, certain types that have more similar genomes are able to exchange genetic information more easily, but there aren't as strict barriers. And so what you call a species mostly has to do with divisions that people made before we knew about DNA altogether and are a lot based on how this particular set of bacteria looks or reacts to different stimulus. But when a particular bacteria gets a new gene from another species, is that a third species? We don't really know where to draw the lines. 
Do you think that's going to change, like, the way people define what a species is? Do you think it'll change um, so that it's more based on, like, what the DNA is? Yeah, actually, um, yeah. I mean, there are definitely people that um, want to kind of do away with the concept of species in the bacterial world. But it's just really helpful right now um, because we need some way to tell what's different than everything else. But you're completely right that there is a new way of defining species, and it's called a OTU, an Operational Taxonomic Unit. So mm-hmm. basically that's saying we don't know what's a species and what's not. This is an operational definition of species. It's something that works, right? And taxonomic means that it has to do with how similar DNA is between any two bacteria. And so what usually happens um, in order to say what species are in a given sample, microbiome sample, is they look at all the DNA and there's a particular gene that varies a lot. Like it's kind of a barcode for a species. So there's this particular gene called 16S RNA that is basically a barcode for a species. But because our definition of species is kind of vague, what instead they do is just take all of these 16S RNA sequences they find and cluster them into groups of things that are similar, all go in the same group, then draw a line and say anything that's 96% similar is all a species, an operational taxonomic group or unit. So yes, that is how species are defined in a lot of these studies right now is just by how similar their sequence of this particular gene is to the sequence of that particular gene and something else. Hmm. Another question, have bacteria always lived sort of like dependently on another creature? So like, for instance, in humans' guts, or is that kind of a new thing Hmm, That's a great question. There's a huge variety of bacteria, and some are completely dependent on their host, and some can live wherever they want. So there's a huge range of how dependent different types of bacteria are. Whether it's new or not, bacteria have been associated with humans since we've been around. And if you look at pretty much any organism out there, you'll find bacteria. We don't necessarily know when dependencies evolved or how how that relationship between the host and the the microbes um, became quite as dependent as it is in any given situation. But um, there are many, many bacteria that are completely reliant on their host or on other types of bacteria. But then there are just these kind of rogue bacteria that can live anywhere and withstand anything. So you'll find bacteria in some of the most extreme environments in the world, like thermal vents and things. They can go where no man can go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So switching gears a little bit to talk about the paper that Mm -hmm. you picked out for today. Mm -hmm. Commensal bacteria play a role in mating preference of Drosophila melogaster, melanogaster. Could you tell me a little bit about why you picked this paper and how you found out about it? Sure. As I've been talking about, I studied bacteria when I was in grad school, and I actually picked this, or I saw this paper um, when I was in grad school and did a journal club presentation to my department about it. I will admit that part of the reason I picked it was because the first author is named Sharon. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, 
the way that they usually write names of authors is last name first, then first initial. Um, Sharon G, which is also my name. So uh. this is a Sharon that's a last name. My Sharon is a first name. Anyway, it was just <laughs> icing on the cake because this is a really, really cool paper. What it's basically about is that it's not just the bacteria differ between different hosts or different groups of hosts, but that can actually have an effect on the host's behavior, which is um, pretty crazy. I hadn't heard that before at all. I knew that different bacteria can digest your food differently or give you problems, health problems, but I didn't know that they could actually affect the behavior of the thing that they're living in. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So this experiment was run on flies? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, Drosophila melanogaster. So interestingly, I had no idea at the time when I first read this paper, when I presented it, that I would grow up to study Drosophila melanogaster. And so this is really the perfect intersection of what I did before and what I do now. Oh, so now you're very well acquainted with them. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Do you mind talking a little bit um, about how the experiment was run and sort of how they manipulated the food sources of the flies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, basically they started knowing that when you take flies and separate them into two groups and then either give those groups different foods or put those two groups in different temperatures or put those two groups in different pH environments and leave them there for a long time, that when you put them back together, flies that were in one environment want to mate with other flies in that same environment. And there isn't much mating across the two groups. So that was something that had already been observed before. People didn't really know why or how quickly that would happen. So that's where this study picked up, is trying to figure out what's actually driving this separation, this mating preference. And so what they did was they decided to look at why groups that eat different foods choose to mate with only other flies that ate the same food. What they did was they took a population of flies, they fed them all initially this cornmeal molasses yeast, which is just this gooey, mucky, delicious brown slop um, that flies really like to eat. So flies in the wild, all they eat is rotting food. If you want to go catch flies, you go to a trash dump, and that is where you'll find flies. And so a lot of these stock centers that you can order flies from, those flies were initially caught from just trash cans, farmer's markets, Wherever there's rotting food, there's flies. They don't have uh, a food of choice other than whatever's spoiled. But in the lab, this is a very common fly food, cornmeal molasses yeast. And so initially, the flies were all given the same food and then divided into two groups. And one of the groups got to stay eating this sweet cornmeal molasses thing. And the other group was given food that had starch instead of cornmeal and molasses. So it's basically like one group is eating sugar, one group is eating starch. Separately, for just eating these these two foods separately, for different numbers of generations. So they started with 25 generations. And after 25 generations, you might think, well, they've just been separated so long that those two populations, maybe they have 
changed in some way, their genome is changed, who knows that they, they just prefer each other because they've been separated so long and it has nothing to do with what they were doing while they were separated. But what they went on to show was that when you give these two groups different foods and then bring them back together and let them choose who to mate with, that even after just two generations eating these different foods, there was a strong preference for flies that ate the same food to mate with each other. So that was a cool finding, a cool initial thing, was it's probably not just that they were separated for a long time, but that there was something about what they were doing while they were separated. Because even after just two generations, there is a difference in who the flies want to mate with. Hmm. So how did they know that it wasn't the food per se, but... Um, the bacteria in the food that was making these mating differences occur. Yeah, so they did a bunch of things. They really went all out to prove exactly what you just said, that it was bacteria and not just the food itself. So one thing they did was before they gave flies the choice of who they were going to mate with, they took these two groups and then let them all eat the same thing right before they tested their mating preferences. So the flies that were eating the starch went back to eating cornmeal molasses right before they got to choose who they mate with. So the last meal or even the last bunch of meals that each of these flies had was all the same. So it wasn't just what was in their stomachs or, or what they had been eating for a while. It had something to do with longer-term things that were going on during their separation. It wasn't just the food. The next thing they did when they saw that even after two generations and even if they were eating the same thing right before, uh, the next thing they did was they hypothesized that maybe it wasn't the food itself, but it was the bacteria in the food that was causing this mating preference. So what's the best way to test if something works? You break it, you take it away, and then see if that thing doesn't work anymore. They gave all of the flies antibiotics right before they went in the mating chamber. And what that does is basically kill all of the bacteria in both groups of flies. And what they saw was that uh, when these flies had no bacteria, they also had no mating preference. Um, the flies were mating nilly-willy. <laughs> Doesn't matter what they ate, uh, what they grew up eating, that didn't seem to matter anymore. The flies were mating with whoever was around. Hmm. So what were the mating conditions like for the flies? Really nice. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they had a mating chamber, and they gave them what's called a multiple-choice mating test, which is <laughs> simpler than what we have to do in the real world. But basically, they... Uh, first, they kept them on the CMY food, so that now this is at the point where they're all eating the same thing. Um, they're kept in the same very consistent cyclic conditions, so it's basically just trying to make everything normal. Then what they did was they have this 24-cell plate. It's, it's a sex hotel for flies, mm -hmm. and there are little uh, spaces in this plate where up to four flies can fit and what they did was take two flies from one group, a male and a female, two flies from another group, a male and a female, and put them in a mating chamber all together. The flies took a look around and they went for it. And what they did was clip the wings of one group or the other so they could tell who was who. And then they could track 
who was mating with who and whether there was a preference for mating with someone that ate the same food as you. So were they able to uh, single out the specific species of bacteria that was causing these mating preferences? Yeah, they did. Okay. How did they figure out which bacteria were in which flies, right? Um, So they have these two groups of flies. You can mash up all the flies, extract DNA. So they're protocols for breaking the cell walls. You can just, what's called beating the cells with beads that breaks open the cell walls, extract the DNA. And then what they did was amplify just the region of DNA that has the 16S RNA gene. Animals don't have this gene in their genome. We don't have it. Flies don't have it. Only bacteria have 16S RNA. So if you know what you're looking for, if you know that, you know, part of the sequence of this um, 16S RNA, then you know that if you look for only parts that have this, then you're looking at bacteria DNA and not fly DNA. And so what they can do is amplify this DNA. Basically just pick out all the pieces that have 16S and then look at the variation. So look at, okay, I know this is a 16S gene, but it has a very particular set of letters that are different than this other 16S gene. And as I said, that's kind of a barcode for a different species. So they took all the 16S genes that they could find, grouped them into these operational taxonomic units, these groups of 16S sequences that are all really similar, and call that a species. And then to figure out what species it actually is, you can try to match them to the best match in a a database of 16S genes from bacterial species that we know about. So that's what they did. They did it separately for the flies that had eaten the starch and then the flies that had eaten the, the molasses and they got different groups of 16S sequences from each of those sets of flies and then tried to match the groups to known bacterial species. And they saw that there was a particular group, um, Lactobacillus plantaris, that was way, way, way more abundant in the flies that ate the starch. Uh, This was a pretty big difference and that gave them the idea that maybe it's this bacteria that's causing or in some way associated with the meeting preference. How did they figure out exactly what the biological effect of the bacteria is on the flies? So sort of like what's the mechanism that's like actually changing the mating preferences? Yeah, that definitely wasn't known. And I think they must have just had a hunch. They don't explain why they tested this, but what they tested was whether there were difference in the cuticular hydrocarbons. These are molecules that are really well known to be in many, many, many different insects, and they're really important for protecting the insects from drying out. So there are these molecules that are produced and are, are on the surface of the skin, and they had a hunch that maybe they saw this mating preference Flies that ate one thing didn't mate with flies that ate the other thing. They saw a difference in the bacteria between those two groups. And then they thought maybe these bacteria are influencing the types of cuticular hydrocarbons that these two groups of flies are making. So they tested that. They looked to see, again, if you mash up all the flies and then uh, look at their... Um, I, I'm not 
as familiar with cuticular hydrocarbons as I am with bacteria, but uh, you can figure out which flies have which types of cuticular hydrocarbons with gas chromatography. So there are certain molecules in these hydrocarbons that are more or less stable and bigger or smaller. And if you put them through a gas chamber, they'll go at different rates through it. And so they're able to figure out by timing the amount of time that it takes different types of molecules to go through what the makeup molecularly is of the cuticular hydrocarbons that a given fly or group of flies has. And they saw differences. They saw that there was a different pattern of things that went through this gas column in the two groups of flies, which was a good indication that they had different types of cuticular hydrocarbons. And I think it was also that not only did they have different types, but the starch flies had less in general less cuticular hydrocarbons. They were just producing less of these protective uh, molecules. And right, so these uh, hydrocarbons, they're known to be protective against drying out. They're also known to be associated with um, attraction and that flies can sense the cuticular hydrocarbons that another fly has. And that gives them a good indication of how hot that fly is. Um, and so we have other ways of doing that. Like we're also smelling different people and there's something about their smell that is either more or less attractive to a given person and that can vary between people. Flies have different ways of figuring out who they want to mate with and this is definitely one of them. But it wasn't really known before that bacteria could have such a big influence on the cuticular hydrocarbons or the sex pheromones that flies produce. It was thought before, um, in many ways, that a whole species of insects all produce the exact same hydrocarbons. And that's what prevented different species from mating with each other, is they just weren't attracted to each other. But more and more you're seeing that there's actually variation within a species, and now this was showing that bacteria had something to do with that variation. And if bacteria can change really quickly, then your hydrocarbons can change really quickly, which means you can go from hot or not back and forth um, also really quickly, which is a whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something about smell or maybe some other way of sensing chemicals that forms the basis of attraction. What we don't know is whether our bacteria can influence that just like the flies bacteria can. Hmm. Do you know if there are being uh, experiments run that are looking at the effect of our bacteria on our mating preferences? Um, I haven't heard of those experiments, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone's working on it. Microbiome experiments are really, really big right now, and we're, everybody's kind of astounded by how much bacteria affect. You are kind of hard-pressed to find something that bacteria don't affect, so... Yeah, I'm sure there are people out there looking at that, but I don't know of any confirmed scientific validation. Uh, it could be coming. We don't know whether bacteria affect our attraction hormones, but we do know that bacteria affect a whole lot of molecules and compounds that are in our body, not just the ones that are in our stomach, but things that potentially are, are in our brain as well. This comes through different channels. What's kind of alerted people to the fact that bacteria could have something to do with neurologic conditions is that 
diseases like autism that were thought to be purely behavioral or had no relation basically to to what you were eating seem to come at a higher prevalence in people that also have digestive disorders. So there's these linked groups of, of diseases where a lot of neurologic seeming diseases also um, tend to occur with microbial dysbiosis or changes in the microbiome. And so autism, schizophrenia, a lot of different diseases have been linked to changes in the microbiome. Most of them, it's not known what the link actually is, but we do know that bacteria are producing chemicals and compounds that are the same chemicals that our brain makes. So things like dopamine, there are bacteria that can also produce that. So whether through signaling or through actual direct production of, of chemicals, there's definitely communication going on. And we're still definitely sorting out what that communication line looks like and how potentially we could manipulate it to increase people's health. But we do know that there are associations and there are ways that these two systems could be communicating. Do they know whether, um, so for instance, the example you gave of autism, mm -hmm. do they know whether that's being caused by digestive problems or if that's causing the digestive problems? That's a really great question. Um, I do not have the answer, and I don't know that anybody does. Uh, a lot of the work that's being done right now is still trying to get at what's cause and what's effect. And doing experiments in flies is a really great way to start sorting that out by being able to change the bacteria and then seeing what the effect is on the host. And so in this case, it was pretty clear that it wasn't um, that it wasn't mating that was changing the bacteria, it was actually bacteria that was changing the mating behavior um, because they were able to take away the bacteria and see that the effect disappeared, but then put back the bacteria. So they found the particular species of bacteria that seemed to differ most between these two groups of flies. And when they put just that species back, this mating preference came back as well. So that's kind of the the gold standard, right? If you're able to observe something, then manipulate it by making it go away, and then manipulate it by bringing it back exactly when you want to bring it back. That's, you can't do better than that. <laughs> um, I was also wondering if the bacteria population is changing so rapidly, how, how can that produce like a long-term neurological change, like uh, bring about autism, if it seems like the changes are so day-to-day -day that I would imagine it would be like one day you're in a good mood because of your bacteria, and then the next day you're in a bad mood. Mm. So, so what you're saying is it's possible that there's short-term and long-term effects? Yeah, exactly. There, there are short-term and long-term effects. So we don't just get bacteria by eating things. A lot of our bacteria actually comes from our mother. When you're inside your mother's stomach, you have absolutely no bacteria, or at least mostly, although that's being debated too. And you get your first set of bacteria, the initial colonizers, which hold sway for a while, through the first thing you touch when you come out through the, the birth canal. Usually that's your mother's skin. In that way, bacteria aren't exactly um, a hereditary material, but 
you're able to pass on bacteria from mother to child. Um, and so you do get what's called vertical transmission down a lineage. And yes, bacteria change, but it's harder to change something that starts out there. So the bacteria that you get when you're first born, they have a part in shaping how you develop, how your immune system develops, what your immune system thinks is part of you and what it thinks it should attack. So the bacteria that are there first, which are the things you get from your mother, kind of set the stage so that they have the upper hand. You know, it's their home turf now. So there are definitely bacterial signatures or certain groups or compositions of bacteria that stay with a person for the rest of their life. There are ways to change that. One way is to just take a lot of antibiotics and, and kill everything, but there's still kind of these stable features that are, are more long-term and then could even be passed on to the next offspring. The way that works in flies is really interesting because flies don't get their bacteria through the birth canal. They're laid as eggs. Um, and what the mother fly does is coat each of her eggs with feces to give her baby a little extra pep when it wakes up. There's <laughs> some nutrients waiting around for it. And as soon as that egg hatches, the first thing the baby fly does is eat the coating of its egg, which has plenty of bacteria in it. So in that way, the first bacteria that reach a fly is also the bacteria that was in the mom. Um, and so there's vertical transmission in that sense too, just in a slightly different way of getting it. There are many ways to get bacteria. Um, the ones that are there first get to call a lot of the shots, but then you have some sway over what happens next based on behavior. It's still kind of an open question how much it can change in any given amount of time. There have been a couple long-term studies of humans looking at the same human every day or every week over years at a time to see exactly what the time scale of change is. Um, and for the most part, it's really stable. The study that I'm thinking of showed that the biggest change was when one of the individuals they were testing went to India and then came back. That travel, just being exposed to a whole new set of things, that changed it pretty significantly. But just day-to-day -day life and eating broccoli one day and then spaghetti the next day doesn't change it drastically. You still have this backbone. You're not going to necessarily just pick up autism out of the blue because you ate one thing or another. Um, there are definitely stable parts that, that carry through. The study that you mentioned of the person going to India, um, was that a positive change in the gut bacteria or negative change? It's hard to say. I mean, we don't necessarily have a way of characterizing it beyond just did that person feel better or worse. I don't necessarily know how they felt that day or in those following days. What I think was seen was that the microbiome did, after they came back, go mostly back to the way it was before, but there were some lasting impacts there too. So yeah, we don't have a great way of saying whether any particular change is good or bad unless it makes you more susceptible to some kind of disease, some kind of invasion by a bacteria that just takes over everything. That's, that's usually bad. When one particular species takes over everything, that's an infection 
and uh, that's usually not a good thing. But whether if you have a little bit more of this one or a little bit less of this one on any given day, if it makes you feel good, then it's good. And if it doesn't, then it's not. <laughs> Back to what you were saying about uh, the baby flies eating their mother's feces off of the egg that yep. they've been hatched from. Um, first of all, that's rather strange. But um, <laughs> how do they? How does the mother know to do that? To mm. coat the coat the egg with the feces, and then, like, yeah, why would that be advantageous? I don't know how the mother knows to do that, except that they're maternal instincts. Just like we know to cradle our babies and rock them to sleep and feed them milk. A mom fly knows in that same way that this is what moms do. And probably it's because feces contain nutrients. And when a baby fly first is born, the mom might not be there. They might not know what environment it's waking up to and it might be some somewhere really barren um so the best thing they can do is leave them some starter material to get them through the first phase so for humans though would that be that would not be nutritious to eat your own poop hmm. right um it's a good question um so i talked before about fecal transplants and uh it's <laughs> We're not expecting to get nutrients out of it, but um, uh, unless that person had a serious bacterial infection, which is always a potential, so I wouldn't recommend it, that would be the main danger of, of eating feces. Hmm. <laughs> but I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, the fecal transplant, does that is that like ingested or is it like inserted somewhere? I think you could do either. Um, huh. There are actually some YouTube videos out there that will give you the step-by-step -step if you really want to know. And I think they are also, they're at least in the works, is like a, a fecal transplant pill where this could be marketed as a commercial product. But uh, right now it's mostly just done in hospitals, but there are plenty of DIY fecal transplanters out there that have taken matters into their own hands. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> There's YouTube videos about how to make a smoothie. That's. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we're not that far away from flies. <laughs> so, why would you say that this experiment is groundbreaking? Um, I think why it's really interesting is. It shows this really tight-knit relationship between the host and the microbes and how they both benefit each other in some ways, but they can both really influence each other. And one of the things that um, can result from something like preferential mating, where two groups that have been doing different things only start mating with each other, is over time those two groups become different species. And if bacteria could actually be some of the driving force behind why different species evolve, that's pretty groundbreaking. So gut bacteria could potentially be playing a role in the evolution of flies. Is that what you're saying? Evolution of flies and the evolution of different species of flies even. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. over long, long, long time scales. And even potentially humans? Um, we don't know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I think these are really interesting questions to look at. And, I mean, we can look at how bacteria has changed from our ancestors, like great apes and chimpanzees, to humans and see kind of this consistent changes from, from one species to another in terms of which bacteria it has. And, again, we don't know whether that's cause or effect, but if a study like this can show that it's a cause and not just an effect, I think that's really um, something that we might want to investigate more of. Hmm. Do you think that the diet changes in humans over time? Do you think that's changing sort of our relationship with our gut bacteria? Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's what kind of makes this really interesting, too, is we're at this point where our bacteria are changing probably more than they ever have in human history because not only are we eating different things we're eating a lot more things that bacteria can't do much with so bacteria are really good at digesting fiber and we know that the american diet specifically has a lot less fiber than what ancient diets used to have so bacteria are probably hungrier than they ever were and that means that certain species of bacteria probably just can't make it. So we're losing a lot of our diversity of bacteria. On top of that, we're also killing them directly through antibiotics. And even if you personally aren't taking antibiotics, antibiotics are used in a lot of livestock and are in water sources in some places. They're around us all the time. Uh, So we're kind of doing double duty in some ways in terms of killing off some of the species of bacteria that have been around for a long time. So the composition of our gut microbiome probably looks really different than it used to. And that that speed of change is probably quicker now than it was before. Um, so we don't necessarily know what effect that's going to have. We do know that we eat very different diet than non-Western countries, and we have different amounts of antibiotics than non-Western countries. Is that going to affect anything beyond just what our bacteria are? Or is that going to have kind of wider impacts on on how we evolve as a species? Um, I think that's, yeah, a really interesting question. Hmm. How do you think um, bacteria evolves to have this capability of changing, like changing neurological things in our brains? Yeah. I mean, you could think of them as little masters kind of like pinky in the brain um (laughs) what we do affects their environment where they live is our gut right so think of it as like they're living in this big snow globe that happens to be inside our stomach so whether it rains or snows or whatever is up to us and so they it's in their interest to uh that we behave in a way that benefits them whether there's really a master plan or not is (laughs) probably not a question but the fact is that we depend on them and they depend on us and so if we do something that's helpful for them then they are going to survive better and the ones that benefit from that the most will evolve to be more abundant in our system Hmm. well Sharon it's been a pleasure talking with you thank you Um, Sophie yeah thank you so much for coming thank you it's been a pleasure
that's our episode. Thanks for listening. Sophie, what did we learn? Bacteria and gut bacteria have a huge influence on a lot of different aspects of our lives. And from the study, we learned that gut bacteria actually influences and drives the mating preferences of fruit flies. And so we learned that. And then we also learned that in humans, it has an effect on our men- mental mental state. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, okay, let's say you're online dating. You don't know what kind of diet someone was raised with. And yet, these flies, somehow, their bacteria know. And they know what to seek out in a mate based on the bacteria in the mate's gut. It's true. Does that freak you out? It's crazy. It freaks me out, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope it's freaked you out sufficiently. Thanks for hosting, Sophie. Thank you for having me. The authors of the study were Gil Sharon, Daniel Siegel, John Ringo, Abraham Heffetz, Ilana Zilber-Rosenberg, and Eugene Rosenberg, a group out of a few different Israeli universities. And this study appeared in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in November 2010. You can find links to the study itself and Sharon's work on our website, neurofriendspodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at neurofriendship. Our theme music is Transmogrify by Poddington Bear. Again, this episode, we want to thank the Stanford Storytelling Project, the Thinking Matters Program at Stanford, and Generation Anthropocene Podcast. Special thanks to Sarah Hauser and Jen Sloan for feedback on earlier versions of this episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Do you know what you want to be when you grow up? No. <laughs> That's, That's what we, what we like, like to hear. Keep the <laughs> options open. <laughs>